Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom, everyone. I want to thank you all for coming out and attending the uh, Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I am the author of the commentary, and I'll be your teacher throughout the entire study. The, um, the commentary itself is available online at both of my websites. You can go to www.graftedin.com. Click on the very top menu um, for where it says podcasts and mouse down to where it says uh, Shomer Mitzvot, Exegeting Galatians. And then from that page, you can both view or print the commentary, the complete commentary. Or you can go to my personal Torah teaching website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And from the homepage, there's a link at the very top that says Galatians Commentary. You click on that, and then scroll down to the page, and you'll see the commentary there where you can print it or view it, PDF version. Um, currently, the commentary is 122, 123 pages long, something like that. And it was updated on August 22nd of 2015, so it's fairly recent version. Let's start with prayer. And then I will read some liturgy. I'll do a selection out of the Art Scroll Siddur, the complete Art Scroll Siddur um, Sephardic version. I'll read some Hebrew there. And then I'm going to read some um, Greek for you a little later on. And then after the liturgy, then uh, I'll read the table of contents that you see on the screen there. Okay, let's start with prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless your name and we thank you. We say, bless you, Father, for your goodness and for your mercy, for your kindness, for your compassion. Bless you, Father, for sending us your Son, Yeshua, so that we can know and understand you fully. Thank you, Yeshua, for coming into our hearts and filling us with your words, for filling us with your goodness, for causing us to praise the Father, for causing us to, to fall on our faces and thank you. Bless you, Yeshua, for sending your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to cause us to cry, Abba, Father, for, for superintending the words of the text for us. Thank you for this book of Galatians. Bless you, Father, for causing Paul to write it and to, to passionately pen uh, truths that are relevant for us today. Help us as we study the text, because we don't have all the answers. That includes the teacher. 
Cause us to know and to understand your words so that we can do them and teach others to do them. Like Ezra said, we study in order to do, in order to teach. Help us, Father, as we grow, as we interact with one another in our congregations, in our families, in our respective relationships. Help us to exercise uh, mercy and grace and compassion, forgiveness for those who uh, have different opinions than we do. We don't have all the answers. We seek to be like you, Yeshua. Help us to be noble Bereans as we press into the text and study to see if these things are, are true, to see if these things are in fact right. Take us through the study with a renewed sense of purpose and vigor and an excitement for studying the text. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and all these things, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. All right, let's begin with some liturgy. I'm going to uh, start in the um, Art Scroll Sadur and read some Hebrew. And I'm going to start on page 19 with the English. And then I'll jump right over and read the Hebrew on the facing page, okay? Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Hashem, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Hashem, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. The Hebrew reads, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. The next paragraph reads, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us His Torah. Blessed are you, Hashem, giver of the Torah. The Hebrew reads, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mekul ha'amim, v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah. The third paragraph is actually right out of the Torah. It's Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 through 27. In English it reads, And Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, So shall you bless the children of Israel, saying to them, May Hashem bless you and safeguard you. May Hashem illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May Hashem Turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Let them place my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall bless them. The Hebrew reads, Vaidiber Adonai el Moshe Lemor, Daber el Acharon ve'el Benayv Lemor, Ko Tivrhu et Benay Yisrael, Amor Lahem, Iverechacha Adonai ve'yishmarecha, Yair Adonai Panayv e'lecha v'chunecha, Yisa Adonai Panayv Elecha, Vayasem Lecha Shalom, Vesomu 
את שמי על בני ישראל ואני אברכם. And the last paragraph is from the Talmud, from Tractate Peah, uh, it's out of the Mishnah, and it's 1-1. Uh, and it reads, These are the precepts that have no prescribed measure. The corner of a field, which must be left for the poor, the first fruit offering, the pilgrimage, acts of kindness, and Torah study. And the Mishnaic Hebrew reads, Ele devarim she'en lehem shi'ur ha'piyah v'hibikurim v'harayon u'gmilut chasadim v'talmud Torah. Okay, that's the selection from Hebrew. Now let me pull up the Greek, and I'm going to read one verse out of the Greek New Testament, and I'll read the English afterwards. I'm going to read the Greek first this time. Some of you may know the verse, some of you may not, and so uh, this will be kind of nice. The Greek reads, Ho de karpastu numatos, estin agape, chara, airene, macrotumia, christotes, agotosune, Pistis, Prautes, Incratea, Kata, Ton, Toyutum, Esten, Namas. And the translation is, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Amen? That's actually from Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. All right. Um, let me just check the recording levels. Everything looks good. Let's get started. This is exegeting Galatians, and the, let's date stamp this. Today is, in Korea, it's Wednesday, October 14th, 2015. So I'm just going to use the date stamp for the Korea time, since that's the time I'm actually live teaching. Um, for those of you who are following the study in other parts of the world, you might be a day ahead, you might be a day behind. But time stamp here in Korea, October 14th on a Wednesday. Um, if, you're, if you are looking at the screen right now, uh, we'll just start from there and go page by page. Exegeting Galatians, Messianic Jewish Commentary. And again, my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Um, all quotations for this particular study are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible by David H. Stern. Copyright is 1998, unless otherwise noted. Um, this particular commentary was updated August 22nd of 2015, so it's fairly up to date. All right. Let's go over the table of contents so that we can um, get an idea of what the commentary is going to entail. If you look at your screen, you'll see that there are um, 12 sections to the commentary. And the first section is the preface. It's entitled, Ten Common Questions Regarding Torah Observance for Gentile Christians. Um, the second section will be the introduction. And then from there, we'll move through number one, Brit Milah. Number two, ouch factor. Why the male reproductive organ? Number three, proselyte conversion, works of law, part one, understanding the background. Number four will be covenantal gnomism. Number five will be works of law, part two, 
Number six will be lessons from Acts chapter 10. Number seven will be under the law. Number eight will be Galatians 3.19, prevailing Christian and Messianic Jewish perspectives. Number 11 will be the promise. I'm sorry, I skipped number 10. Uh, and number nine, let's go back again. Number eight will be Galatians 3.19. Number nine will be the summary. Number 10 will be conclusions, Torah, negative, neutral, or positive. Number 11 will be the promise. Number 12 will be an excursus, additional tough phrasing. And then basically the next one, two, three, four, five, six sections are actually the book of Galatians proper where I go somewhat verse by verse. So Galatians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and then chapter 6. And those are all really um, contained within the excursus. What I call, the reason I call them additional, I'm sorry, the reason I call them tough phrasing is because in my experience of teaching and studying Galatians along with Christians and Messianic Jews and with unbelieving Jews, I've found that that most people approach the book of Galatians have questions about only certain verses in Galatians, not the entire book as a whole. So when I wrote this commentary, rather than comment on every single verse, I started by simply selecting tough verses. And the reason I call them tough is because they are the ones that are frequently used in dialogue between, say, traditional Christianity versus Messianic Judaism. They are the verses that, that are verses of contention, verses of um, question, verses of difference, verses where differences of opinions take place. And so I decided to single those out first. Perhaps someday in the future when I rewrite this commentary and turn it into a book and it grows in length from a hundred and so pages to several hundred pages, I guess, at that point in time I'll probably fill in and make a commentary on every single verse in the book of Galatians. But for now, this is where we're at, and this is what I'm going to teach. So, let's keep going. Alright, page one, preface. Ten common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians. Let me say up front that the reason I have this preface in the commentary is because right out of the gate, right up front, I want to kind of get... The I want to stir interest in the in the topic. I'm not actually going to read the book of Galatians until we get to uh, section number one, where we start talking about the topics of Galatians. But for the preface and for the introduction, I'm not going to read the book of Galatians just yet. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Again, um, my intent was to actually kind of stir dialogue, stir interest in the book, stir interest in the topic of Paul and um, the topics of Torah observance, uh, because let's face it, if you've ever visited um, a Messianic congregation, or if you regularly attend your traditional church and are familiar with Messianic teachings, then you're probably no stranger to the idea that differences of opinion on the validity and applicability of Torah um, comes up time and time again. In a word, Traditional Christianity believes that the Torah is, on a practical level, not relevant for Gentile Christians. Um, whereas, by um, by uh, now, you probably realize that most Messianic Jews, myself included, believe that 
Torah obedience, Torah observance is a practical part of our everyday living. So we have differences of opinion. I'm not saying one is entirely right and that one is entirely wrong. That's not my point at all. Rather, we have differences of opinion and it's studies like this that I hope will kind of pave the way for better dialogue, pave the way for better uh, interfaith interaction between the two groups. Eventually, it's my goal to actually see the two groups come closer together as we worship and serve the Lord together. Amen? It's my goal to see traditional Christianity and Messianic Judaism come closer together under the banner of Yeshua, under the banner of God's truth. And in so doing, um, both of us will learn and be better, be uh, a bit wiser for the um, for the doing. So, this preface itself is kind of like its own mini-study uh, you could actually, I could say that I could teach this preface by itself without even the book of Galatians needing to come and tag along. But I, I included it at the beginning of this particular study because I want it to kind of whet our appetite for the larger study as a whole. So let me go ahead and read, and then I'll just comment. I'll read, and then I'll comment, and we'll see where we can get through in this uh, hour. And then I'd like to um, let you all know that there's going to be a 15-minute Q&A session after the uh, Torah study itself, after the, the commentary study. 15 minutes of Q&A where you can type a question in the chat room, and I'll go ahead and field the question, and uh, that will not be recorded into the podcast, into the audio recordings, but uh, this is a special treat for those who attend the live study, okay? All right, let me go ahead and read, and, and then I'll just stop and comment as needed. Why did Paul write the book of Galatians? Was it to warn Gentile Christians away from getting sucked into the dead religion known as Judaism? Was it to expose the uselessness of the law of Moses in the life of a believer in Jesus? Was it to show fellow Jewish believers that to fall back to a life of ceremony, ritual, circumcision, Sabbath, feast days, kosher, etc., was to fall back into slavery and bondage, and that they should instead keep pressing forward to the freedom found only in a relationship with Yeshua? Or perhaps there was a different reason the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, superintended the writing of the letter. Let's imagine for a moment that you, a 21st century Christian, have just finished reading the letter to Galatians. And let me pause and say, I really hope that you're reading the study, or reading the, the, the Bible first and foremost. All of your your uh, central spiritual nutrition is going to come from the Bible. It's not going to come from any man's commentary, no matter how good that commentary is. So I hope you're reading the Bible first and foremost. But let's suppose that you just finished reading the book of Galatians, and then you pick up this commentary and go through it in one sitting. I don't think you would do that, but let's suppose you do. What thoughts do I, the author of this commentary, hope that you might have concerning what you just read here? How will I have influenced your um, your in- interpretation and understanding of the book of Galatians? I actually write my commentary with the hopes that they'll stimulate real-life dialogue about Jewish and Christian relations. I don't actually just write my commentaries for the sake of academia, for the sake of, of trivia, for the sake of um, just for the sake of Bible studies. I actually write them because I want people to read them and to contemplate perhaps life changes. And so, um, I'm keenly aware that the mainstream Christian movement does not embrace Torah obedience as a way of religious life, 
and that they quite often separate the law into moral, ceremonial, and civil components, with Jesus doing away with the ceremonial and the civil. And um, that's probably what drove me to write the first paragraph the way I did. I did not mean any disrespect. I did not mean any uh, ill rhetoric. I did not mean any, um, uh, what would you say, uh, foul tone or sarcasm. None of that was intended in my first paragraph. Rather, these, these questions are real as far as I can tell. So with the Torah being broken down into ostensibly the, serial, the, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil, and with two of them being done away with, um, traditional Christianity has chosen to retain the moral parts and to jettison what they identify as ceremonial and civil. And that would include what I identify as the badges of Judaism. These would be Sabbath, kosher, uh, you know, the dietary laws, the restrictions, uh, the festivals, of course, uh, any ritual of um, tzitzit wearing or things like that. Those are all kind of um, assumed under, under the headings of ceremonial and civil, which traditional Christianity feels has been done away with. This commentary is designed to challenge the mainstream Christian notion that as believers in Yeshua, we're no longer bound to ceremonies of the law, the likes of Sabbath, feast days, kosher, and of course that painful commandment circumcision, right? To be sure, I affirm the ongoing validity and application of, of those commandments just listed, to include a host of others that are not listed here. Put another way, I don't believe Jesus came to set us free from keeping Torah. Instead, he came to empower us to keep it properly. So, that's why we need to do studies like we do. My aim is to challenge the 2,000 years of traditional Christian teaching that says that the Torah is no longer relevant for Christians once they believe in Jesus. And I'm not challenging them just for challenge's sake. I'm not challenging them because I feel I have all the answers. I'm not challenging them because I believe that their answers are completely wrong. I believe that much of what Christianity teaches is absolutely accurate, 100% accurate. And so I want to keep those parts that are accurate, and I simply want to build on the parts that I think we need better um, we need a better understanding of, at least according to how I have interpreted and understand the scriptures personally. And uh, I'm not alone in my endeavor here. Um, there are plenty of other theologians, well-meaning Christians, uh, standard Bible readers, um, just basic ch churchgoers. There are hundreds of thousands of people around the world who believe what I'm going to teach here, who believe the way I believe. And so I'm not alone um, I'm, but I'm just one person speaking today, okay? Let's keep going in my commentary. In an effort to begin to develop a working context for the social setting, uh, the social settings that many believers might face after reading this book of Galatians, this study that I wrote, I've decided to entertain ten common questions or Christian objections to the notion of Torah observance for Gentile Christians. Indeed, in my experience of speaking at various Christian churches and Bible studies as a Messianic Jew, I have been asked these exact questions or variations of these questions by genuine and well-meaning Christians, no doubt, but questions which oftentimes stop Gentile Christians from embracing the notion of Torah observance in their lives. So, the questions are real. Um, the dialogue is real. 
my answers are real. So I hope that you'll um, read along with me and contemplate the questions and answers with me with that understanding that um, I put myself in the position of those who might read my study and scratch your head and say, you know, Ariel, that sounds good, sounds plausible, but what about this? What about that? What about this verse that I read? What about what my pastor said about this particular passage? Things like that. And that's where these questions were born out of. The objections themselves and the subsequent answers are not exhaustive. Um, they're only meant to serve as the beginning of a dialogue between those believers who embrace Torah as a lifestyle and those believers who do not, and also as a primer to this study on Galatians and Paul. For ease of understanding, this preface was actually... Um, oops, I think I jumped too far ahead. There we go. This uh, preface was actually designed to stand alone as its own mini-study on Torah observance. These ten questions were originally presented as a live Bible study to a Christian men's group in Boulder, Colorado in 2013, a few days before I moved to South Korea. So, um, I think for this first uh, week, this first session, we'll probably only tackle the first two questions, and we'll save the rest, the other eight questions, or we'll just go question by question as we move along. But I think the first two will get us started, and we'll be able to dialogue from that. So, um, let me start with the first question. The question says, what is Torah? And you'd be amazed. For those of you who are in Messianic circles, you might be wondering to yourself, Ariel, why would you start with a question, what is Torah? Everyone knows what Torah is, right? Well, surprisingly, no. In, in my experience of, as a Torah teacher, and as a, a, a Bible teacher, Torah teacher, um, for about 15 years now, uh, going on 15, well, no, 20 years, um, 15 years at my current congregation and, and about five years before that at a different congregation um, at my own synagogue, I have found that many, many well-meaning Christians believe the Torah to be something other than the Bible that they actually have. They believe the Torah maybe to be an extra body of literature that only Jewish people have, or maybe the Torah is an ancient scroll written in Hebrew that uh, only synagogues have, and that that Christians really don't have access to the Torah. Actually, then, the answer might be a bit surprising. The answer is, Torah is God's teaching, but Torah is also law. Torah is actually the first five books of your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's Torah. So, using this comprehensive historical definition, that it's God's teaching, the whole Bible is really Torah, because all of it is God's thoughts that have been breathed out by Him, right? Everything from Genesis to Revelation is really Torah, even though most Jews don't refer to anything past, say, Deuteronomy as Torah proper. Um, recall that Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, quote, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, end quote, as I chop the verse off there. All of God's words are Torah. All of God's words are um, his teaching. However, the word Torah, I understand people who might uh, disagree slightly with my definition here. The word Torah most often simply refers to the first five books of the Bible. So I would call that Torah proper. And in fact, if you've ever 
had the opportunity to visit a synagogue, a traditional synagogue. I actually attended traditional synagogue for two years before I started attending a Messianic synagogue. Um, uh, meaning, when I say traditional synagogue, I mean um, Judaism that does not believe in Jesus. So traditional synagogue. This, this in fact, was an Orthodox slash um, conservative synagogue that I attended for two years. And no one there that I was aware of believed in Jesus Although I did. I did believe in Jesus at the time. I still do believe in Jesus, obviously. But I, I was a Messianic Jew at the time that I attended. And um, it was quite an interesting experience. Maybe I'll share some of that with you students a little later on. But in synagogue there, um, the rabbi would never refer to Torah as... He would never refer to the New Testament as Torah. He would never refer to as what Christians would refer to the New Testament. He would never pull that into his definition of Torah. Although, in Judaic circles, it's entirely possible at times to use the word Torah to refer to um, the writings of the rabbis, the writings of the sages, um, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, the Sifre, the Responsa literature, the, um, the Midrashim. Um, all of that sometimes gets pulled into the word Torah. For instance, if you ever um, have a chance to visit or if you're familiar with yeshiva. Yeshiva is basically Jewish seminary. Uh, it's a place where students go to study, among other things, the Torah and to learn and to prep, uh, prepare maybe for, um, prepare for the, to become a rabbi or prepare for other um, public teaching positions. But when you go to yeshiva, and I attended yeshiva for one year before I had to uh, uh, stop and go uh, do other things, before I had to, to drop out. Um, if you attend yeshiva, you're going to find that they'll refer to Talmud as Torah. They'll refer to the rabbinic writings as Torah. Because they're understanding that Torah means teachings, teachings, God's teachings. And traditional Judaism believes that God's teachings include the oral Torah or the Talmud or the rabbinic writings and things like that. I don't hold the traditional view of that. I don't hold that the rabbinic writings, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Gemara, etc., I don't hold that those are authoritative for a believer. I do um, value their intellectual nutrition. I do um, recommend their historical uh, value for study, for, for academia, but as far as uh, governing um, halakha, governing uh, group policy or, or bylaws for Christians, um, that's where I draw the line. But that's question number one. What is Torah? Uh, let's move to question number two here. And as I mentioned, we're going to stop at question two, and we're not going to do question three for this particular study. Question two, to whom was Torah given? And who is required or allowed to follow it? Now, this particular question I hear quite a bit. I am currently a contributing writer to a popular Christian website called ebible.com. Ebible. And on ebible, it's owned and operated by traditional Christians. And I'm one of the um, contributing authors. I answer Torah questions that people send in from around the world on an, inter, on an uh, uh, internet basis. And so I just write short answers to their short questions. And uh, what I find is that many Christians, in their endeavor to 
decide whether or not they want to follow Torah, decide whether or not Torah, like Sabbath, kosher, dietary laws, uh, feast days, things like that, the visible badges that I mentioned earlier. In their decision to embrace these things or to leave them for the Jews, as it were, often this particular question drives their decision. To whom was Torah given? And I've often said it this way in, 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 uh, in some of my earlier teachings. If I were to take a clipboard with a survey and to go to an average synagogue and ask the rabbi or do a survey of the, um, of the uh, Jewish congregants and just get a feeling for this question, who was the Torah given to and who is required or allowed to follow it? Who has the responsibility? Generally speaking, I'm going to get this particular answer. Traditional Judaism is going to say that the Torah was given to Israel. The Torah was given to Israel. And when they say Israel, they really mean Jewish-only Israel. That's their opinion. That's their, um, that's their feelings on the matter. And I can take that survey and um, kind of record it, keep it, and then I can cross the street, as it were, to the standard traditional Christian church, and do the same survey, ask the same question of the pastor and of the, the congregants. Who was the Torah given to? To whom was it given and who's required or allowed to follow it? And do you know that I've found, and this is real life, by the way. Okay, I've already told you I've attended traditional synagogue for two years. And I've visited many, many churches over the years. And quite frankly, traditional Christianity will answer with a similar answer. The Torah is for Israel. The Torah is for Jews only. It was given to Israel, therefore it's not really for the church. It's not for Gentile Christians. It's for Jews. And neither group will really answer, is it for Messianic Jews or not? That's kind of the fuzzy answer. I suppose if I were to take my same question over to the Messianic synagogue, I'm probably going to get an answer that falls somewhere between it's for Israel versus it's for anyone who's a believer because of the Messianic Jewish stance on Torah. But for the sake of this particular teaching today, I just want to draw your attention to the two um, opposing views. The traditional Jewish view on one hand that says the Torah is given to Israel and it's for Jews only, and the traditional Christian view that says the same thing. The Torah was given to Israel only and it's for Jews only. But let's read my answer. Question, to whom was Torah given and who's required or allowed to follow it? Answer. Recall that the Torah was historically given to Israel nearly 3,500 years ago. But realize that Israel's post-Egypt beginnings include both native-born sons of Jacob, as well as those mixed racial multitudes that God delivered out of Egypt during the Passover. Okay? In other words, Israel is not all Jewish. Israel's not made up of all Jews. In fact, let me turn to a verse here in the Bible. Let's pull up Exodus 19. I'm on my computer here, so I'm just on a different screen. Um, no, no, no. We don't want Exodus 19. We want Exodus 12. And let's, let's go down to verse... Give me a moment as I find it here. Okay. Exodus 12, verse 37 and 38. 
Verse 37 says, And the people, I'm reading out of the ESV version, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Verse 38, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. End quote. Right here in the book of Exodus, we see that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt with the native-born sons of Jacob. Right? The mixed multitude referenced here means a mixed multitude, a mixture of ethnicities. Not only native-born sons of Jacob left Egypt in the Exodus. Rather, a mixed multitude, the verse says, also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So let's continue reading my answer. These two groups, the two groups meaning native-born sons of Jacob and the other the other group, the other ethnicities. I'm, I'm, I'm grouping these. I'm, I'm lumping these two groups together. These two groups, as it were, came to the foot of Mount Sinai. They received the words of God, and they were collectively called Israel by the text. Read the, narrative, the Exodus narratives carefully again. So let me jump back over. We already read Exodus uh, 12, 37, and 38. Now let's jump all the way down to Exodus 19 for a second. And it says, uh, verse 1, quote, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Right? Uh, it says, They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. And then it continues. So that's the opening dialogue of, of the giving of the Torah to this group of people who were collectively gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then, of course, we all know um, uh, Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the ten words, the Asarat the, Habdavarim, uh, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Slavery, verse 1 and 2. Question, did God only bring sons, native-born sons of Jacob out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt? No. He also delivered the mixed multitude. Anyone who put their faith in the blood of the physical lamb, the, the animal, the lamb that was slain that night, and the blood was placed on the doorpost and the lintels. You're all familiar with the story, or you've watched the uh, the TV or the movie series, you know, Ten Commandments or or um, Prince of Egypt or one of those things. And so you're familiar with how the, the Exodus and the Passover worked. But the point I'm trying to emphasize is that the Torah was not given only to native sons of Jacob. That's the point I'm trying to emphasize. All right. Paul later reveals, as I continue in my answer here, Paul later reveals that the mystery of the gospel, quote-unquote, is that according to Romans 11 and Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, and specifically Ephesians 6.19, Gentiles are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel via Messiah. They're actually grafted into remnant Israel specifically, but remnant Israel resides within greater national Israel. So it's like a circle within a circle. So uh, Gentiles are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel via Messiah, 
And these Gentiles become fellow heirs, sharing in the richness of the root of the olive tree. And in doing so, they inherit the blessings that are spelled out in the Torah for all of obedient Israel. Does that make sense? So the paradigm of God giving the Torah to not only native-born sons of Jacob, which the Hebrew would call them um, Ezrach, not only to these native-born sons of Jacob, but the Torah was also given to this mixed multitude as the group collectively gathered at Mount Sinai that day to receive the Torah, God's teachings. It is because of that, therefore, as I finish in this particular question, therefore, since Israel is actually a multi-ethnic entity, the Torah is actually applicable. The Torah actually applies to all who name the name of the Lord as their one and only God. This naturally includes Gentile believers in Yeshua. So, if we recall that little survey where I go over to the synagogue and I ask the rabbi, who was the Torah given to and who is required or allowed to follow it, based on the text, if the rabbi is honest with the text or if he will dig a little deeper into the text, even if he says it was given to Israel, which granted, I'll take that if someone says it was given to Israel, he still has to recognize that Israel is a mixed ethnic, a, a mixed multitude, a multi-ethnic entity, right? I mean, he has to be able to read Exodus 12, uh, just like I just read it a moment ago. Surely he can read that. Also, if I were to take my little survey question over to this traditional church and ask them the same question, who is the Torah given to and who's required to allow it or who's required or allowed to follow it? Shouldn't I get a similar answer now? Meaning, if the pastor is honest with the text, if he'll dig into the text, he'll really begin to understand that the Torah wasn't given to Jews only. I guess what you're hearing me say, in case you're not aware, is that I don't define Israel as Jewish only. Let me put it this way. All Jews are a part of Israel, but not all Israels are a part not all Israel is made up of Jews. And without getting too detailed, we're going to flesh this out perhaps a little later on down into the commentary. In fact, I'm quite certain I will. This issue of identity, who is Israel, who is a Jew, who is a Gentile Christian. This issue of identity really in my experience drives one of the primary reasons why many Christians are hesitant to embrace the, the parts of Torah that they would say make them look Jewish. Embrace Sabbath, for instance. Embrace the dietary laws, for instance. Embrace the festivals and things like that. Many well-meaning, honest, strong... I don't mean they're weak Christians. I mean they're strong Christians. Many sincere believers are hesitant to, hesitant to take on a Torah lifestyle, in my experience, of dialoguing with them, and one of the primary reasons, there's two that I have cataloged, that I have cataloged or categorized, but one of the primary reasons stems from this identity issue, meaning most standard Christians will read the Bible, the Old Testament part, and they'll say, this is for Israel. And because I'm not Israel, this is not for me. This is for a people group that I'm not a part of. And that's my first challenge as we embrace, or as we embark on this study of the book of Galatians. When Paul wrote the book, the book of Galatians, surely Paul embraced the idea that Israel was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. 
He knew that. He was a Torah teacher. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I think he was on his way to becoming a rabbi before Yeshua arrested him on the Damascus Road. Paul was a brilliant Torah teacher, and so he surely knew, as we're reading today, that Israel was composed or comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And so that's why he wrote what he wrote in the book of Ephesians, where he talks about uh, that Gentiles are um, become part of the commonwealth of Israel. And where he wrote in Romans chapter 11 that Gentiles are grafted into remnant Israel, into the olive tree of Israel. So Paul knows that Israel is not a Jewish-only set. And that becomes one of the first hermeneutic keys that are going to help us begin to unlock some of the difficult passages in the book of Galatians as we go through our study. is helping to remind ourselves that Israel is not composed of Jews only. In other words, contrary to the standard traditional Jewish view or the traditional um, synagogue view of the Torah, Israel is not composed of Jews only. Therefore, the Torah is not for Jews only. And contrary to the traditional church, the traditional Christian view, standard Christian teachings today, the Torah was not given to Israel only. That is, if you're defining Israel as Jewish only Israel, no. The Torah was given to a mixed multitude of people that were called Israel. That's their label. That is their their identification in the text. Yes, Israel is their name, but Israel's composition is Jew and Gentile. Now, Arguably, and I will have to agree with this, historically, from 3,500 years ago, leading up to, say, the times of the first century, so for that first uh, 1,500 years or so, primarily Israel was identified as ethnically what we would say Jewish, meaning if we were to just count them by numbers, we would probably agree that most of Israel's um, and have, uh, most of Israel's uh, members were what we would label as ethnic Jews. Okay, granted, that is a given. I'll, I'll, I understand that. Gentile um, membership was on the on the small end. It was it was uh, the uh, minority, and what we would call Jewish membership was the majority. However, we all know those of us who read our Bibles, those of us who've been raised in traditional churches. We all know that starting in the book of Acts and moving forward, that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in mass, started collectively bringing Gentiles into the family clan of Israel, into the people of Israel, swelling Israel's numbers, enlarging her borders, as it were. And so that today, if we were to take a census of the membership of Israel, actually, the Gentiles outnumber the ethnic Jews, right? So today, Israel is really uh, a Jewish minority and a Gentile majority. But that still doesn't change the fact that the Torah belongs to Israel and that Israel is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And therefore, the answer to my question, to whom was the Torah given and who is required, to allow, who is required or allowed to follow it? The answer, the short answer is, anyone who's labeled Israel is allowed to follow it or required, covenantly bound to follow it. The Torah was given to Israel, and those who name the name of Israel or name the label of Israel, who identify as Israel, are required or allowed to follow it. So what we're going to learn as we go through this study 
is that one of my um, central beliefs as a Torah teacher is that as you read through the Bible, as you read through Genesis through Revelation, and as we particularly focus on the book of Galatians, I believe that it's best to keep in mind that when Paul was writing to the believers in Galatians, that he wanted them to know this truth, that they are a part of Israel, that they have been grafted into Israel, even though he doesn't use that language in grafting until he gets to the book of Romans. He wants his readers to know, his students, those who are following him, he wants them to know and understand that via Messiah, they are a part of Israel. Their identity is Israel. Because the promises of the Torah that are spelled out for Israel must apply to the Gentile believers who have been grafted into Israel in order for Paul to make sense, in order for our New Testament to make sense, in order for our New Testament to line up with Old Testament theology. Remember, a good hermeneutic will always take the theology of the New Testament and center it and, and make sure it's grounded in the theology of the Old Testament. We can't have a theology of the New Testament that contradicts with the theology of the Old Testament. That's a bad hermeneutic. And why is that a bad hermeneutic? Why is that a bad way to study the Bible? It's a bad way to study the Bible because God himself does not contradict himself. Because God is the author of the entire Bible. And the Holy Spirit superintended all of the writings, all of the books, all of the verses, all of the words. This we believe with a conviction. And so we, because we believe that, we can't have Paul theologically contradicting the Old Testament. There's a few logis logistical problems with that um, notion, with that supposition. If Paul wrote something that disagrees with the, New, with the Old Testament... Where would he get the authority to do so? The New Testament wasn't written at the time, right? Paul's writing it, at the, as, it as it's going, you know? So the only authoritative scriptures, the only authoritative text that the people of Paul's day had, Jews and Gentiles, the only authoritative text they had until Paul's writings were codified and written down later on, several hundred years later, the only authoritative text they could fall back to was the Torah and the writings and the prophets, what we affectionately call the Tanakh, or what Christians would call the Old Testament, right? So when we're reading the New Testament, we have to remember historically that Paul is using the Old Testament to base his theology, to develop his teachings, to, to, to foster his understanding and to, to um, forward his view of who is Israel, of who has to keep the Torah, or who has the uh, responsibility of keeping Torah. All of this is centered and rooted and grounded in the Torah itself. And sadly, too many well-meaning Christians today, I'm not picking on Christians unnecessarily, I'm simply trying to identify a need so that we can apply proper uh, healing where the need is needed, where the need is, where healing is needed. Too many well-meaning Christians, unfortunately, don't approach the text with that understanding that um, when Paul wrote, he must he cannot contradict the Old Testament. He cannot contradict uh, what God has already written. He has no authority to uproot biblical commands. He had no God-given authority to uproot what God already wrote. That has to be the safest way to approach the text. If not, then Paul's really just charting his own course. He's out on his own. He's 
uprooting what God wrote. He's contradicting what God taught, what God gave to Israel. He's contradicting what his own master, what his own rabbi, Yeshua, also taught concerning Torah, specifically Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where Yeshua said, I did not come to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come, come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Paul could not be teaching the abolishment of Torah either. Instead, what Paul must have done is that he took the words of Torah, the words of his master, the words of Yeshua, and he began to break them down in their proper context, in their proper um, the theological um, construct for the Gentile readers who may not have been familiar with them because perhaps maybe they were not raised in a Torah community like many Jewish people of Paul's day. That's understandable. So in order for us to recover truth from a historical, grammatical, sociological perspective, I have found that the best method is to pull commentaries and um, teachings and writings under our belt as, as uh, 21st century Bible students today. We should get these types of materials within, into our hands and begin to study them and uh, understand that that's going to be a better way to approach the scriptures rather than simply opening up the Bible and assuming that um, assuming that Paul's just making everything up brand new. So that's where I'm going to leave off today. I'll uh, stop the commentary at questions one and two, and next week we'll start with question number three, didn't Yeshua fulfill the law and nail it to the cross? That's where we're going to start next week. But for now, what I'll do is I'll go ahead and give a general uh, closing prayer dismissal. And then, for the next 15 minutes, I'll entertain any questions that you might have. Um, this won't go onto the tape. It won't be recorded, the questions and answers. Uh, rather, uh, if you want to engage in the questions and answers session, you have to stay after it for 15 minutes after the hour-long teaching. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Abba, we bless your name. And I say thank you for the opportunity, once again, for allowing us to study your words, for allowing us to press in to your teaching, to your truth. Yeshua, we bless you. We honor you. We uplift your name. We say, come, Yeshua. Come quickly. Come and, and draw us to yourself. Come and, and bring us uh, unto yourself. Take us into your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to, to minister to one another, to pray with one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to support one another in this wonderful body of Messiah. I thank you for each and every student that attended today. I pray that you'll bless them where they're at. I pray that you'll bless them in their church, in their synagogue. I pray that they will be a light to those around them. I pray that as they study through this Galatians commentary, that the words will go down deep and that they will change them Holy Spirit, you superintend the words. I pray that you will strengthen them in their resolve to take a stand for Messiah and for his truth. Help us to be a witness to those around us. Help us to realize that there are those around us who are lost and dying and that they need to hear the good news. Father, this is not just about learning to appreciate the words of Torah, learning to appreciate the words of Scripture better. Father, this is about reaching a lost and dying world. Give us opportunity to reach out to those around us. 
Strengthen us, Father. Protect us from the adversary in these dark and evil days. Bring us back next week, prepared, refreshed, ready to study once again. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.